Hello and welcome to the Leftfield Shout. My name's Joe Greenwood. Hope you're all doing well this week. Um, it's uh, good to be back. Uh, second episode of this new series. We're actually a third of the way through it, so don't worry, the misery will be over soon for all of us. Uh, everyone seemed to respond uh, well to the first episode of the new series, which was on Girls on Film, which you can uh, still listen to at Holfast Network. Um, all previous episodes are still on there. Uh, we... But this week we're moving on from something different. That was a sort of general topic that I could throw many films under the uh, that umbrella. But this week I'm moving on to a filmmaker that I greatly admire. Someone who I think is maybe the best filmmaker in the world. Uh, that's the Turkish filmmaker Nuri Bilga Ceylan. He, um, quite, quite an incredible filmmaker I feel like. And uh, I think he's someone that I should try and give a spotlight to. Small thing to wrap up from last week. There was I, I set up a competition to give some of you a chance, you know, to win something and get a bit of recognition on this show. And none of you got the question right. Not one. I had a couple guesses. Nothing coming close to it, to be honest. Um, what it was, I had the song Knights of White Satin playing before the show. And I said... Tell me what film I'm referencing with that song that ties into the topic of this week's episode. So Girls on Film, a film about women that involves that song. Of course, it's only one film. If you Googled that, the only one film would come up, and that's House of Tolerance by Bertrand Bonello. I mean, how did you not get that? 2011, it's a new film as well. Newish. You should all see that film. Uh, The scene that, that film's quite well known for its in a brothel but um, the director uses like modern songs like pop songs and there's one scene set to uh, Knights of White Satin so that's what I was referencing uh, slightly disappointed no one got that but no great loss because I'll bring back a competition maybe next week I don't know I need to come up with actually something that's like a good question though Something that will prove to be difficult. Um, maybe not as difficult as that, because I would actually like to have someone win something from this podcast. Let's forget about the past and just move on forward and get talking about one of the best filmmakers in the world currently working, uh, Nuri Bilger Jalan. <laughs> Şimdi siz bize biraz şey edebilirseniz, yani en azından şu tahliye davasını durdursalar. Aslında iyi öğrenim görmüş, dürüst, nadir bir insansın. Ancak yeri geldiğinde bu erdemlerinle insanı boğan, küçük düşüren, aşağılayan bir hava taşıyorsun. Mesela ne seviyor musun? Bilge, Ceylan is someone who very much a what you would call a art house filmmaker, someone who does things which are niche or esoteric. Uh, he doesn't conform to a traditional language of cinema. Uh, his aspirations uh, of something grander than what is on the surface of most films and in life. Uh, and his inspirations are very much of a specific type of cinema. Um, you can tell a lot about his films 
it um, by his submissions to the Sight and Sound 2012 Once in a Decade Best Film of All Time list. Uh, he only he chooses ten films by five different directors, assigning two to each filmmaker. There's two Andre Tarkovsky films, Mirror and Andre Rublev, two Robert Bresson, Oazar Balthazar and A Man Escaped, two Yashijiro Ozu films, Late Spring and uh, Tokyo Story, two Michelangelo Antonioni films, La Ventura and Le Clis, and two Ingmar Bergman films, The Shame and Scenes from a Marriage, which the last one there, Scenes from a Marriage, is really could have been the title of the first one I'm going to talk about, a film that came out last year and won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, uh, his gigantic film, uh, Winter Sleep. I say a gigantic film, it's actually a very much a contained film, it's really a chamber piece set in a hotel, it follows the relationship between a man and his wife and his sister, all set in this hotel. I say it's an epic film, it's epic in terms of length, it's about, it's just over three hours, um, but it also deals with epic ideas, the idea of uh, marrying someone because you love the idea of them, um, and then what happens when that idea that you have of them turns out to be not true, and also what it means to be a man, and how men deal with guilt. The film follows Eden, uh, a former actor, played by uh, Haluk uh, Bil- Bilgener, I think is how you say his name, uh, who you may recognise uh, if you were big into EastEnders in the 80s, from EastEnders apparently. There's a very good line in this where, because he plays a former theatre actor who now writes for a newspaper and is planning to write a book about uh, Turkish theatre acting and the Turkish theatre scene, uh, where he talks about how he rejected roles from soap operas and fame wasn't really a big thing for him. Of course, the actor himself famous for EastEnders. Uh, Then you also have his wife, Nihal, played by Melis Sozan, and uh, Nessia, played by Demet Akbar, um, who all play off each other and sort of bring out the worst in him. He's a real sort of brute of a man who is cruel at times to the people in the village that live near his hotel, people that he rents uh, homes to. Um... He's cruel to people that owe him money. He's just a very cruel man, essentially. But he has this crushing guilt when it comes to his wife. He has guilt about... Really kind of... Tying her to this place that she didn't really want to be in. Uh, She had these romantic notions of him when they first met, of being this sort of acting power couple. Uh, in the Turkish theatre scene, and it just doesn't come to pass. He's someone who sort of passed that. He lived that life, and now it's over. And now she doesn't really have much. It's it's the the whole film is really sort of dealing with the guilt that he has to 
try and get over. He's someone who is who feel who who feels like he should be the type of man that he is pretending to be but can't. You know, at times in the film he gets told he's an unbearable man. Um, I think that's towards the end of the film and that he's called spiteful and cynical. But then he's also the, the flip side of him, that he is an honest, fair and conscientious man. Uh, and that he... But this is all dialogue that his wife says, but he sometimes uses these virtues to suffocate people, to crush and humiliate them. So he's someone who likes the idea of being a great man and a great leader of men, perhaps, but ultimately gets off on the idea of crushing them more than anything, beating them for his own gains rather than the greater good. It's it's a very wordy film. It could have really been done as play, even perhaps. You know, there is talk of theatre throughout the film, but it could have possibly have been done as a play. Uh, it's it's it's quite a remarkable film. It's there's a great. The first hour of the film is all set in the hotel, and there's just scene after scene of dialogue and uh, these long dialogue sequences, which take about like ten minutes, some of them, and it's very slow and static, but d- deeply engrossing. Uh, scenes where they just fire back and forth each other the dialogue and then um, an hour in we're just suddenly released from it and we're in this open green area and we see these horses running away uh, because he wants to get a horse for the hotel and get a wild horse and get it trained for, for him and we see this horse get captured and then throughout the film, he goes to the horse a couple times in the middle of the night to kind of check on it. And you realise that he kind of sees himself as that horse, that he's kind of, you know, tied himself to this to this place that he doesn't want to be in. That he's kind of almost humiliating himself by just being there. That's what he thinks. And then, for me, it's him realising, no, that's not me, that's my wife. I've caught this person, caught this thing that doesn't need to be here. I've only got it here for my own selfish gains. And really, I should let it free. He lets the horse free. But at the end of the film, we see him looking at his wife, and maybe his release of letting her go is admitting to his guilt and admitting to his sins and the apologizing and maybe trying to make things better to her. Hayır ama belki yaptığı işten bir anda utanacak, belki vicdan azabı duyup suçunu itiraf edip teslim olacak. Buna fırsat vermek gerekmez mi? Olur mu canım öyle saçma şey? İki üç kişi pişman olup vicdan azabı çekebilir belki diye yüzlerce insanın ölümüne göz mü yumulsun yani? Ha dizilerde bile yok böyle saçmalıklar gözünü seveyim Necla. Valla sen nasıl düşünürsen düşün benim için sorun çözülmüştür. Kişisel olarak bana yöneltilmiş bir kötülüğe karşı koymak için hiçbir neden göremiyorum ben. Beni öldürmek mi istiyorlar? Buyursunlar öldürsün beni. <gülüyor> çünkü kendimi savunmaya kalksam böyle yaptım diye katil nasıl olsa daha iyi bir insan olacak değil. All of his films, I think from uh, Uzak up to Winter Sleep have been in the main competition at Cannes and have won an award at Cannes. But if you want to see what for a lot of people is his best film and it might, I think it's probably is his best film. It's not my favorite film of his. Uh, although it is absolutely spectacular. 
was the film that won the Grand Prix Award at the 2011 Cannes Film Festival, uh, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Zamanlar Anadolu'da dersin, cürabi yerde görev yaparken işte böyle böyle bir gece yaşamıştık dersin. Anlatırsın yani ne bileyim masal gibi. Once Upon a Time in Anatolia follows the very basic setup of uh, someone's been murdered, they know who did it. What they want to do is they want the murderer to find the body for them. And the murderer's willing to do it. He's willing to try and do it, but he can't remember where he did it because he buried him in the middle of the night and he can't remember where he went. So the film follows these detectives across one night as they take this murderer to find the body. Very basic setup, simple sort of police procedural. Except Jay Lan does something spectacular with it. He takes what could be a basic genre piece and and turns it into a meditation on the victims of the decisions we make. Maybe not the obvious victim, like someone being murdered, but the family of the person murdered, the family of the murderer, you know, the the police detectives who have to spend their time doing this and everyone else, and just the mental uh, anguish that these people have to go through. Uh, the film is spectacular for a number of reasons, for those sort of thematic reasons, also for the performances, which are uh, brilliant. Jalan manages to cast these great actors who have these really sort of deep faces. They have, like, deep crevices in their faces, and he lights them with this sort of golden lighting. Uh, in Anatolia, there is this sort of golden lighting that hangs over the whole film really there's a great sequence uh, where the murderer is trying to find the body and he's trying his best to try and remember but the police detective thinks he's trying to waste time um, and trying to get out of it and he sort of chases him and starts beating him up and they have to try and wrestle him away and as this happens these two other detectives are standing way back this whole scene has done this huge wide long shot and it's in this golden field, and you just see this apple drop from a tree, and these two detectives who are standing way back just watch as this apple drops down from this field into a slight bit of water, this little ravine, maybe. And it just rolls down through this water, and the water carries it, and you think it's going to be this moment, and they watch it, and you're trained to believe that apple is going to stop, and it's going to stop on a hand, and then that is going to be the moment where they find the body, and that's... Then the film goes into the third act, but no, it just rolls, just rolls down. Jaylan just totally messes with your perception of what is going to happen in this film. The other sequence, which was, I, I still t- think about it to this day. It's one of the most beautiful sequences I've ever seen in a film, uh, where the it's actually kind of a convoy of <laughs> police officers and this criminal go to this small town in 
in uh, this small village, really. And the mayor of the village greets me. He says, "Like, come in, come in, come eat, come eat, come eat into my, come into my house. You know, nothing's going to change. You know, just come in and eat." He's not going anywhere. They go in and eat, and uh, they uh, they start eating. And even the criminal is sat in this sort of circle with the police officer. And they're all just eating and they're talking. I can't remember what they're talking about. I don't think it really matters, to be honest. And they're all eating and uh, trying to have a moment of brevity in this uh, film. And then they finish eating and then the uh, daughter of the mayor comes into this sequence. And then you realise what these men all are and they're all lost souls. They're all lonely men who have nothing in this world. They They don't have anything. The daughter comes in. And she's lit, she's holding tea, and she's got this sort of lantern sort of light thing uh, on the tray. And she's lit like this religious painting. It's it's one of the most gorgeous scenes I've ever seen, where she goes around and gives the men the tea. They take tea, and each man has a different reaction to her. And then you realise what she is, what she represents, and that's humanity. She this idea that we can empathise with even some of the worst people because instead of giving the criminal tea because he doesn't like tea she gives him a coke instead and then the criminal starts to cry and he realises this is the last time that anyone is going to be this kind to me who's going to understand any part of me it's a really sensational sequence and I think it's one of the best I've actually ever seen. I'd put it next to anything. Anything. Bergman's done. Or Bresson. Anything they've done. It's one of the... It's, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a really special film. And that's a, an extremely special moment. And then you realise the downbeat ending. The downbeat moment when you realise the... The idea that there are other victims to this crime, where the they found the body and then they're doing the autopsy and they're going through it, and you can hear it. And this one detective, the main detective of the whole film, sort of walks away from the table and he looks out the window and then he sees the wife and child, I think, of the murdered man on the table. They're walking down this back street, and the kids walking with the mum. And then there's a school right there, and there's kids at the school. So it kind of tells you that this that they can't really afford to send this kid to school, and they're walking back. And then um, these kids are playing outside, and they're playing football. And this football comes, flies over the fence, and it's that thing where you have to kind of kick it back, you know, if you're not around, if you're not in the uh, school. And so this kid goes and kick picks up the ball and kicks it back into the playground and you see in that moment of innocence really in the film. Even the the mayor's daughter has this thing of I'm around these men who are sinners and I'm here to try and help them. But this is the purest connection in the film is when that kid kicks the football back into the playground. Uh, I'm going to wrap this up now by talking about What's probably my favourite film of his? Um, I remember seeing. I can. 
as is always the case, I can always remember where I was when I saw this film. And I actually remember the day. It was a Sunday. And I spent all day in NFT2 at the BFI South Bank. I went to like a two o'clock screening of the Jay Lan's Three Monkeys, which is a good film, but I'm not a huge fan of. I think it's an interesting film, and I think it's very good, but it's a lesser one than these three that I'm going to talk about. And then I saw Eli Kazan's Baby Doll, which is a fucking great film. It's so good. It's got um, uh, Eli Wallach in it and Carol Baker, and it's just and it's written by Tennessee Williams. He wrote it for the, for the screen. And I think it's Eli Kazan's first film as a director, and it's it's just so beautiful. This stunning, stunning film, so good. And then after that, I saw what I think is what is. I, I still think about it to this day, much like I think about that sequence from Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, and I sometimes think it's one one of my, the best films I've ever seen. And that's Jaylan's. Climates, which is about a husband and wife or a boyfriend and girlfriend, as played by Nuri Bilger Jalan himself and his uh, wife, uh, Ebra Jalan. And uh, it's about this uh, relationship that falls apart. Um, we open on a on this couple who were on holiday uh, on a beach and you can tell that things are a little bit tense you know they're a little bit they give each other short shrift and they're slightly angsty towards towards each other and they are a bit you know not on the best terms Uh, and then they split up and then we follow the the, the boyfriend as played by Jalan, who's this kind of, and he's kind of uh, similar to the guy from Winter Sleep. And he's a bit of a brute. Doesn't treat women all that well. There's a woman. There's a quite awkward to watch sex scene in there between Jalan. Uh, I think he's called uh, what's he called? Issa, uh, who sees his mistress, who he's been. Who he saw, uh, even when he was with his longtime girlfriends, and they have this where he's this scene where he forces her, himself onto her, and the, the whole film's shot on these low-grade digital cameras. And this scene is sort of—I think the camera is even just on the floor—and you see him force himself onto her, and then they're down on the ground, and he's sort of like she's trying to push back against him, and then he's trying to force his like trying to, like, pull her jeans off. You you question whether she's into it, because then you see him around there again. Uh, and then they don't do something similar. It's slightly more romantic. So there's this odd dynamic that he has with these women, where you sort of question who's the one in control here, who's the one who's getting off on this, who's the one who is uh, enjoying this. But the reason why it's such an amazing film to me is because it's about that thing of wondering about someone that you loved and whether they still love you and whether they are 
whether they still think about you and whether you're still in their thoughts. And what um, what brings that up is that there's this amazing sequence towards the end of the film. The last 10 minutes, 10-15 minutes of this film are probably one of the best 10-15 minutes of any film you're ever going to see. As I said, much like that sequence with the girl with the T in Anatolia, I would put this up against any film by Bresson, Bergman, Antonioni, whoever, Fellini, Godard, doesn't matter. You know, where we see this couple, uh, Issa and Baha, uh, played by Joe Lyman's wife, meet up in this town where she's been filming this TV series where she's working as an assistant producer, like an associate producer. And he goes there to meet her and they have tea and they sort of talk. And you think like, oh, that's it, they're not going to get back together. And then you see in her hotel room, he comes round and then there's this incredible sequence where you have no idea what's, what's happening, but you think they're having sex. You think that they're, they could be having this intimate moment, but we don't see any of it. It's all just shapes and body parts moving in and out of focus. Like, the camera's totally still, and you see someone slightly in the background out of focus. Like, and then in the foreground, someone's hand will move through in focus. I can't do it justice enough, but you just have to watch this film for the last 15 minutes. Gotta watch the whole film up to that 15 minutes, otherwise that bit doesn't make sense, obviously. But it's these sort of shapes move in and out of focus, and then you just cut to them sat on the bed, and you think, did they have sex? Did we just see that? Is that... It could be one of the most experimental sex scenes I've ever seen. It could be the most experimental just dialogue scenes, maybe, that they just talk to each other through their body movements, through their touch. It's it's absolutely incredible. And then you follow it up then with the next scene where you think they're, they're back together, where he tells her, we're not. Um, you know, it, where she th- she's talking to him like, oh, you know, perhaps I'll, I'll come back and see you soon. And he said like, yeah, you know, there's no rush. Don't, don't worry about that. Like, you should just stay here and do your work, essentially. Like, he thought that there was something there that was worth fixing. And then when he... When they tried, when they tried to, he found that there was, and then she found that there was, and then he has to get his flight back to Istanbul, and she's on set filming the scene, and then you hear this plane overhead, and then you see it, and she sees it, and she looks up, and then she looks back down, and she starts to cry, and then she literally fades from memory that she actually fades from the shot and then all we're left with is the same shot but her just not in it anymore just this snowy landscape with the snow falling and her fading from memory and it's about that idea of someone that was important to you no longer being that important to you and then all their memory all your good memories of them and then all the ones that sort of were worthwhile no longer seeming important because you tried to fix it and it wasn't worth it. 
and it wasn't there. Perhaps it's that idea of the memory of the person is actually better than the reality of them. Uh, that's why I think Jay Lan is such a special filmmaker, is that he has managed to make some of the best scenes, sequences, and films of recent memory up there with anyone of the current standard, current gold standard of filmmaking, like Michael Haneke or Paul Thomas Anderson. He's a very, very special filmmaker, I feel like, and is maybe already one of the all-time greats. Sana bir şey söylemek istiyorum ama yanlış anlama. Merak etme bizim mutsuzluğumuz onlara iyi gelir. <gülüyor> The Leftfield Show is a part of Holdfast Network. Uh, Holdfast Network is a network of podcasts. Uh, all desi- not designed, ran, run by Jack McEnroy and Steve Walsh. Uh, whose podcast is South London Hardcore, which is uh, all about South London. There's loads of different podcasts on Holfest Network that you should check out, uh, South London Hardcore being one of them. Steve Walsh is also on one called Process, which is about comic books and comic book writers and their, how they uh, make comic books. There's also uh, one that I loved, even before it was on Holfest Network, I'm a big fan of, uh, and that's Basement Tapes, um, by Sam Bedford and Harry Walsh, I think the other guy's name is. Uh, you should check that out, where they have a theme and then they pick ten songs around it. It's very good, i got to say. And then you've also got For the Hamlet, which is about Dulwich Hamlet Football Club, which is, if you want your fix of non-league football, go there. But yeah, Holfast Network's always looking for new podcasts, by the way. So there's a submissions page where you can submit your ideas for a podcast. Uh, that will go straight to Jack of um, South London Hardcore, and you can. You know, there's why not? Why not? Why not do it? Go with God and do it. Record a couple episodes, whether it's you just on your own like me here, um, or whether it's with you and your friend. I, I recommend doing it with someone else because honestly, this gets so fucking tiring. Like my throat right now is absolutely knackered. It's really sore. <laughs> I can't wait to finish recording this now. Um, I mean, I do another podcast with a guy uh, called James where we talk about wrestling. You can listen to that, by the way, at mixcloud.com forward slash Boston Crab Pod. Podcast called Boston Crab Podcast. It's all about professional wrestling. Uh, that comes back next week, actually. Oh, shit. I better get on that. Um, but yeah, just record record a podcast if you if you like it, you know. It'd be good if you can actually, like, do it on your own for a little bit. Like, at least try and get, like, four or so episodes done. uh, So that it looks like you're not going to just, like, duck out of it after a while. So, you know. 
And the good thing about Holdfast Network is that they do, you know, like this, it's only six episodes per series. So you could do six episodes, take a month off, come back and do another six. Easy. Like, that's not that a lot of stress, you know. I don't think there's any excuses for you not to do it. Really, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get as many bad podcasts submitted to Jack so he has to listen to them. And hopefully it makes his life hell. No, I'm sure your podcast idea is going to be good. Just do it. Why not? See what happens. Worst thing that can happen, they say, is no, sorry, it's not for us. And then, then what might happen? You might go, ah, shit, uh, they didn't like it. Well, we still enjoy doing it. Let's keep doing it. Anyway, no excuses. You should do it. Yeah, you should do it. What am I talking about? Uh, anyway, Holdfast Network. For all of your podcasting needs. How long is it since we've seen each other? Oh, well, let's see. Uh, I spent six weeks in Reno, then Bermuda, about four months, I guess. Seems like yesterday to me. Maybe it was yesterday, Hildy. Been seeing me in your dreams? No, oh, no, Mama doesn't dream about you anymore, Wally. You wouldn't know the old girl now. Ah, uh, yes, I would. I'd know you any time, any, any place. place. Anywhere. Ah, oh, you're repeating yourself, Walter. That's the speech you made the night you proposed. Yeah, I know that you still remember it. Of course I remember it. If I didn't remember it, I wouldn't have divorced you. Yeah, so I wish you hadn't done that, Hilly. Done what? Divorce me. Makes a fellow lose all faith in himself. Gives him a... Almost gives him a feeling he wasn't wanted. Oh, now, look, Junior, that's what divorces are for. Nonsense. You've got an old-fashioned idea. Divorce is something that lasts forever, till death do us part. Why, divorce doesn't mean anything nowadays, Hildy. Just a few words mumbled over you by a judge. We've got something between us. Nothing can change. Oh, well, I suppose you're right in a way, Walter. Sure, I'm right. I am fond of you, you know. And a girl. I often wish you weren't such a stinker. Yeah. Okay, let's get on to what is often described as my favourite part of each episode. The listener questions. Uh, let's see what we've got. I got sent this one a while ago. Simply put, where should I start with Kurosawa? Um, Kurosawa... Well, the thing with Kurosawa is that he's actually quite a populist filmmaker. He wasn't like a... He was kind of like a mainstream filmmaker, I guess. Did a lot of uh, genre films. So, really, anywhere is quite doable. If I was to give you four that you should watch, really, in... I'd say watch them in this order. Go High and Low, Throne of Blood, then watch Ran. Oh, fucking Ran. What a film that is. That was the first Kurosawa I watched, and I watched them. I remember watching them with my dad on DVD at his place. He got it for his, for his birthday, and he was like, This film's so fucking good. It's basically King Lear. Kurosawa did some of the best Shakespeare adaptations, if you didn't know. So, Ran. Oh, God, that, the colours in that film are so great. Uh, then watch Bad Sleep Well. And then watch uh, Ikiru. Ikiru? Ikiru. I'm not sure how you say it. Watch them in that order, because you have then two police procedurals. Political, sort of, modern day. Modern day for the time. Police procedurals, and then you have two sort of samurai movies. Uh, I'm, I'm not, I didn't say Seven Samurai because I haven't seen Seven Samurai, so I'm waiting for the perfect moment to see that film. And then Ikiru, which is this 
fucking heartbreaking drama about really a man that doesn't recognise his own country anymore. And it's fantastic and sad and beautiful and worth any one's time. Can you explain the, the appeal of Mike Lee? It's supposed to be realism, but to me it looks it looks like a bunch of actors who have been allowed to do allowed to be as actly as they want, which is usually very. Um, I mean, I think Mike Lee's a great filmmaker. He's an institution in this country. So how dare you speak ill of him? No, I get it. I mean, I think if you know his process, it that stuff becomes more obvious the sort of slightly actorly nature of it, but I think his process is slightly misinformed or misrepresented, perhaps. It's it's more he has the idea and that he lets them just figure out the dialogue and character beats, and then he takes all that stuff and then moulds it into what he wants. So there are some actly moments, but, but here's the thing. It's great watching someone act. It's great watch when they're really good at it, obviously. That's he, he gets some amazing performances. I think, I don't know. I mean, it depends on which ones you've watched. I mean, if you've watched, I didn't see the Mr. Turner, even though I know I would have enjoyed it, but I just didn't get round to it. But something like Naked, which is so fucking harsh, is and is really nasty and uncomfortable, um, which I highly recommend. I think it's a great film. Uh, has great actually moments, but has great story moments. There's a really excellent bit with the security guard in the empty building, which is like just like a short story. It's just brilliant. It's like, um, I don't know, maybe something Kafka would have written. Uh, it's that's I think that's really sort of special, and that sort of ties into that voyeurism of cinema as well. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it, here's the thing, you don't have to like every filmmaker there's some filmmakers I just don't get um, or I didn't get for a time and now I do either through age or just life experience uh, one of them being Noah Baumbach who I really did not get or enjoy his films until I saw Francis Ha and I was at that moment in my life where it coincided with some of those similar things and then I went back and watched... I, I've been doing it recently. I went back and watched... Um, I watched Greenberg. Uh, which is great. Which is great for the moment where Ben Stiller does coke. I'm so on. Yeah, I'm just so on right now. Um, and then I rewatched. Uh, I rewatched The Squid and the Whale. But before that I rewatched Margot at the Wedding. Which I think is really underrated in his uh, back catalogue of films. And I think Nicole Kidman's amazing in it. By the way, Nicole Kidman, one of the best actresses, actors of all time. Uh, if And don't come at me saying, what, Nicole Kidman, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't make sense. Just look through her IMDb. She's worked with amazing filmmakers and done so many strange films and... Uh, what was that one from the 90s To Die For that's a really good film watch that I think that's still on Mubi actually so if you've got a Mubi account watch uh, 
Watch that. Get Movie, by the way. It's only two ninety nine a month. Two ninety nine a month for thirty films. That's crazy. New film every day. I'm not. They're not even sponsoring this podcast, and I'm saying how good it is. So anyway, um, yeah. So Mike Lee, it's great. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, some some filmmakers just don't jive with you. That's that's all. They don't all have to be. You don't have to connect with every filmmaker, mate. It's fine. Uh, anyway, that's going to wrap up listener questions, but you can send in questions to holdfastnetwork.com forward slash askjoe. Or you can just at me on Twitter, uh, at leftfieldchow. Uh, I'm wrapping that up quite quickly because I wanted to talk about a film that I saw, which, if this isn't my film of the year, we have had an amazing year. Uh, I'm talking about the new Peter Strickland film, The Duke of Burgundy, which has been out for a couple of weeks now. I only just got to see it, but try your best to try and see it at the cinema. It has to be seen on the big screen. This film, it touches on all the stuff that I love. So it's so it's 1970s softcore erotica. Um, and there's sort of like European softcore films like Belle de Jour, uh, Morgiana, uh and Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant. And then also like Stan Brackage as well. Like Moth Lights. You can tell there's a big influence just through the the constant butterflies coming in and out of the film. But you have to see it because the first ten minutes you think it's one film where it's going to be this type of sadomasochistic two women, Euro trash type films and the performances sort of play up to it. And then it spins it. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it spins it. And you're like... Oh my god, this is great. This is so good. And then the whole film is less about one person trying to dominate the other, but then you realise maybe it's the other person and it's about what you're willing to do for someone that you love, essentially. That's what the whole film is about. Whether you're into it or not, it's, it's, it's, as long as you love someone, then you're willing to do things that aren't within your comfort zone, but if it makes them happy, then you'll do it. And it's just about that cycle of doing that and whether you're actually happy happy in that moment or not it's it's really a special film and it's probably going to be my film of the year i can say it now in march if that isn't my film of the year then i'll be a very happy person uh so yeah duke of burgundy try and see it it's so good how much owe you ma'am dollar and a half there you are keep change just keep your eye Let me have a Diablo sandwich, a Dr. Pepper, and make it fast. I'm in a goddamn hurry. You want something? Hush, puppy, Daddy. We got no time for that Okay, that's going to wrap it up for this week's episode of The Left Field Show. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, next week's episode, I'm not sure what it's going to be. It could be one of two things. I'm not going to ruin the surprise for you, though. Uh, I think it's. I think both of them are going to be quite good ideas that you could enjoy. But, yeah, thank you for listening. I hope this encourages you to seek out some of Jolan's work. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker who... Um, yeah, you should, you should just watch. He's fantastic. Absolutely brilliant director. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'm supposed to say something else here, but I can't remember what it is. Um... Yeah. Oh, I guess um, if you're listening on the website, and if you're subscribed on iTunes, you can like leave reviews and stuff. So, which helps the podcast. So, if you want to do that, that would be 
of great help. Um, that would help the podcast and our overall help whole fest network just leave like a review hopefully a five star one but if you don't feel like doing a five star one i'm not i'm not someone who's would want that i'm not going to ask specifically just for that but if you just leave a review if you want um yeah go go ahead and do that i don't know anyway uh, i hope you enjoyed the episode i hope you have a nice week and uh, i'll speak to you soon Since you're trying to look for the end of the road You might find out later that the road will end in Detroit And the road will even end in Kathmandu You could go all, all around the world Trying to find something to do with your life, man When you only gotta do one thing well You only gotta do one thing well to make it in this world, man You got a woman waiting for you there. All you ever gotta do is be a good man one time to one woman, and that'll be the end of the road. I know you got more tears to share.